Hello, I'm Tracy Metz. Welcome to Water Talks, The Big Five. This is a series of five conversations with people I interviewed for this podcast about the UN Water Conference and the New York Water Week, made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. Some of our guests had such amazing things to say that we wanted to give them more airtime. New York has done a phenomenal job over the last 50 years of reclaiming its waterfront. We are now a very much a water-oriented city. That is Rit Agarwala, the chief climate officer of New York City and the commissioner of the city's Department of Environmental Protection. Rit trained as a historian and worked as a journalist and as a consultant at McKinsey before going to work for the former Mayor Bloomberg as the head of the Office of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability. He is deeply invested in using storm protection measures to not just build walls, but to make the city a better place for the people who live there, to give the city what he calls a livable waterfront. I asked him, Rit, you've been the chief climate officer of New York now for just over a year. It was over 10 years ago that Hurricane Sandy hit. Where does New York stand now with regards to coming back after Sandy? New York has had actually a a great decade, and certainly up until the pandemic hit, New York's economy and population and everything had been growing, in fact, even faster than we had predicted before Hurricane Sandy. We had projected that New York would reach 9 million people by 2030. The 2020 census showed us at 8.8 million, much faster than we had expected. I think we'll see over the next year or so whether the people who moved out after the pandemic have returned. And if we want to understand how much better protected we are than we were 10 and a half years ago when Hurricane Sandy hit, I'd say it's a work in progress. There's a lot that's been done. New York has invested more than $10 billion in the last decade in a variety of resilient strategies. The most vivid, of course, is probably the Eastside Coastal Resilience Project on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where we have a seawall with swinging gates, and that itself is a $1.4 billion project or, or thereabouts. That'll protect the most populated residential area that was significantly flooded. But there are billions of dollars of work still to be undertaken, even to complete the protection of Lower Manhattan. And there are a couple of other particular projects, is also something on the order of $2 billion that's been invested in public housing resilience, not to keep the water out, but to ensure that the buildings can withstand flooding that might happen in the future. One part of the strategy is to keep the water out. One part is actually to be able to bounce back so that either the buildings can operate fully during a flood, or at the very least that a flood might cause a disruption for a day or two days but not a month or six months, which many buildings experienced after the flooding after Sandy. To be successful in a highly used urban environment, that kind of waterfront defense has to be multi-purpose, right? You can't just build a wall because we use our waterfront. It's part of our park. It's our access to our ferries, right? I mean, you're, you're elevating parks, you're elevating berms, you're doing a lot of things that, that involve a lot of heavy infrastructure, right? If you think about a much broader mandate, which is have a livable waterfront, do all of these great things, and make it resistant to coastal inundation, you get a much better result. There are a lot of Dutch designers and engineers involved in redesigning the New York waterfront to prepare for what we know is coming. 
how would he characterize the Dutch contribution to making New York climate proof? And I told him, don't just say that they're fantastic. The Dutch contribution to making New York climate proof has been tremendous. And I think we saw that, of course, just in the person of Hank Ovink. I mean, he personally, I think at this point, very much thinks of New York as his other home and uh, played a huge role in ensuring that our reaction to Sandy was to think broadly about design and about that integrated waterfront. And I think that's been really tremendous. There are a number of Dutch designers and engineering firms involved with many of the projects here in New York. And so I think it has been quite profound. Has it become a new way of working? Has that really taken root, incorporating design into thinking about infrastructure? Yes. You get to incorporating design once you realize that you have to build stuff and there has to be a certain amount of public acceptance of it. Like so many cities, New York has done a phenomenal job over the last 50 years of reclaiming its waterfront. We are now a very much a water-oriented city. New York always was, historically. It was and it wasn't. I mean, you know, New York in the 1960s and 70s, like so many other industrial cities, had turned its back on the waterfront. The waterfront was not accessible. The water was, was filthy. The water was awful. The waterfront was dilapidated piers and abandoned warehouses. And prior to that, it was active warehouses and factories and other uses that were used and obviously had a lot of people doing work in those spaces, but you never thought of the waterfront in New York in the 1930s as an amenity. But that is no longer the case. There are all sorts of other challenges which are perhaps much more frequent than a hurricane. We have more cloudbursts, we have more drought. What are some of the other challenges that New York now faces on a more daily basis? One of the things that we've seen over the last couple of years has been that our rainfall patterns have begun to change as a result of climate change. Traditionally, New York City, for all of its recorded history until 2021, never saw rainfall of an intensity of more than about four centimeters per hour. And then in August of 2021, we received Hurricane Henri on the 21st of August, 2021. And that day we broke the record. We got about four and a half centimeters of rain in one hour. And then Hurricane Ida hit, and it gave us more than nine centimeters per hour in rain. So literally more than double the intensity that New York had ever recorded in its history. And as a result, that night, Hurricane Ida killed 11 New Yorkers, primarily through flooding in basement homes, which is mind-boggling to think of. But it was a very clear wake-up call at the fact that while we had spent the last decade thinking about coastal inundation as our primary risk, rainfall is also a real risk. And significantly, it wasn't just that one storm. So over the course of 2022, we experienced three storms, three microburst storms, so not across the whole city, but in different parts of the city, that individually were record-breaking storms in terms of intensity, but for Hurricane Ida. Right? And so that is now clearly part of the new normal. It is not something that is just once every decade or two. It's something that we will expect every year, I expect. How is New York going to maintain the infrastructure to gather water in parks and public spaces, requiring infrastructure to be built and maintained while the Parks Department already has a huge backlog of work orders that they can't keep up with now? The maintenance of that kind of infrastructure is a challenge all over the world. I visited Copenhagen last year and visited one of the cloudburst sites and noticed the leaves over all the drain covers. This is something 
that I think the whole world's going to have to realize that the more sophisticated your infrastructure, the more precise the maintenance has to be. I know that the water squares in Rotterdam had trouble not so much with the water, but with the plastic bags that blew into the water squares and blocked the drains. How pedestrian can it be? Yeah. So look, I think that's going to be a challenge. And it's also going to confront us with the challenge of how you handle multi-purpose infrastructure when you have institutions that are single-purpose, particularly here in New York, where that would come from not only two different city agencies, but from two different budgets. So in New York, my agency, the Department of Environmental Protection, we get our funding from the water bills that New Yorkers pay. We maintain the water infrastructure. The Parks Department is funded by the property taxes and income taxes that New Yorkers pay. Yes, we are going to have to figure out new ways to maintain this kind of shared infrastructure. Climate change is no longer about policy. It's no longer about ideas. It's about implementation and delivery. We've had three mayors who have been focused on climate change. Mayor Bloomberg started the conversation. We had the big ideas in the Bloomberg administration. We came up with big proposals. We got people to think about this. We started the ball rolling. Because you were working in New York then? Yes, I was the head of the Office of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability and launched New York City's first sustainability plan. The de Blasio administration both led and benefited from the post-Sandy reality that climate change was real, which frankly we had to argue for back in 2007, 2008, and put in place a lot of the laws and a lot of the designs. Now it falls to us to get all of that actually to work. We've been talking a lot about the big stuff, seawalls, big parks, swinging sea gates, but there are also a lot of smaller interventions being put into place that will also need to be maintained, such as blue belts and the 11,000 sunken rain gardens that the city has built in just the past decade to capture rainwater. That helps avoid flooding and also replenishes the groundwater. That is really an achievement, but it does make me wonder, New York is full. Where are they finding the space for those gardens and all that water? Obviously, New York is a very constrained environment. We don't have a ton of open and unused space. The rain gardens to date, though, are concentrated in certain parts of the city because they were built for combined sewer overflow management. They were not built as a stormwater resilience strategy. We are actually now working to expand them so that they become a citywide approach. Rain gardens are helpful in terms of stormwater management, but really the large volumes of stormwater you manage through blue belts and the cloudburst infrastructure. So one of the things we are working on now is a citywide blue belt strategy. Blue belts are these lakes. We primarily right now have them on Staten Island, the lowest density part of the city, where we've taken lakes, we've connected them to high-level storm sewers, and they become fantastic holding areas for stormwater. And those New York has been doing since the 1990s. But we've done those opportunistically, which means we've only done them in the lowest density parts of the city. We are now working on an approach to bring that as a citywide strategy that may actually require acquiring new property and turning it into this kind of facility. But that's an area where we're being guided by history. So we are looking at where were there historic water bodies that might have been filled in. We're looking at how does that correlate to locations that currently have lots of flooding complaints as it is? And that, to my mind, informs potentially a future buyout program to remove those locations, those buildings, sometimes homes, that are almost inevitably going to be subject to flooding in the future. 
how do you take them out, turn them into facilities that can protect the surrounding neighborhood? A large share of New Yorkers who are subject to coastal inundation are low income and are people of color just because of the historic tendency to live near the waterfront, which again, 50 years ago was not an attractive thing. So we have a lot of public housing, for example, that is right up against the waterfront. We certainly see that in terms of flooding. It's a mixed bag. We have some parts of the city that are prone to flooding that are very well off, some that are not. What always happens, though, is the people who suffer the most are the ones who do not have the means to protect themselves, right? In a high-income neighborhood, if you have flooding in the basement, it's unlikely that you've rented out your basement and somebody's sleeping in there. And so what we saw during Hurricane Ida, tragically, was particularly low-income, particularly recent immigrants who are living often in illegal dwellings, in basement apartments that are not subject to the building code or legal, those are the people who are the victims. And so one thing the city is doing, we are working to legalize basement apartments so that we can go in and start discerning which ones actually are safe and which ones are not, and work with the owners of those buildings, hopefully to bring those housing units up to code. We think we have 50,000 people living in basement apartments across New York City. You can't just say, move them all out because we have a housing crisis. We don't have anywhere for them to go. You discussed recently some of the issues that New York has had with its sewers. One of the issues that is best known is combined sewer overflow, where rainwater mixes with sewage and the sewers can't accommodate it all. How are you going to keep the sewer system operable? New York has come a long way on combined sewer overflows. Like so many cities in North America and Europe, we have a combined system for about two-thirds of New York. And what that means is that when it rains, our treatment plants do get overwhelmed, and we have to protect the treatment plant, can't let them get flooded or anything. And so we put that sewage into the rivers. 25 years ago, New York was putting on an annual basis about 100 billion gallons of combined sewer overflows a year into the waterways. 400 billion liters. We brought that down in 2022. It was at 17. So from 100 to 17. So it's a massive reduction, which is why over the last 20 years, the harbor has gotten so clean. It's not fully swimmable, but the waterways around New York are now so clean, cleaner than they've been since we believe before the Civil War, before the 1860s. And that's why New York now, which was not the case at all 20 years ago, we have whales, we have dolphins. We have seahorses. We had dolphins in the Bronx River a couple of weeks ago. It's that clean. And so it's a huge turnaround. We still have a long ways to go. And we would like to find a way to get rid of that last 17. As with anything, you've done the easy stuff. So that last 17 is going to be expensive and difficult. There's another issue, which is around the way that climate change is stressing our infrastructure in ways that it's never been stressed before. New York City's water system dates back to the 1840s. We've constantly invested in it. We've constantly cared for it. But what we have found with climate change, it is creating new conditions where we don't have a lot of past history to guide us. We had a sewer collapse immediately following one of the record rainfalls that I talked about this past summer. And it turns out it was just down the street from a collapse that had happened in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Ida. And our engineers figured out that this was a particular design of sewer. It was 100 years old. It had done a great job, served the city very well for 100 years. 
but it was in innovative design at the time in 1916 when it had been installed. And it was designed very well to withstand compression, the force of the earth and everything above it pushing down on the sewer. It was a really strong sewer. However, its design, if it experienced outward pressure, was prone to weakening. And you can imagine it as Lego blocks. If they get pushed apart, then they're going to collapse. This is a sewer that probably had never been filled to capacity before Hurricane Ida. And then once again, it got filled to capacity last summer. And those two events weakened it enough that it started to collapse. We are now planning to replace that whole stretch of that design of sewer because we think it'll happen again. Final question, the UN organized its first conference on water in almost 50 years, led by the Global North, the Netherlands, and the Global South in the form of Tajikistan. What do you think will come of this conference? I'm a humble municipal official. Far be it from me to think about the global implications of what the UN does. My take on this was a couple of things. Despite our challenges, despite the fact that in the American West we face massive drought issues and we have our own challenges here in New York City, it's so easy to take water for granted. I think that's a big contribution of an event like this. The final shot of the UN conference will be the Water Action Agenda. Does New York have a role in that or is that all at country level? As a cities guy, one of my frustrations with the UN was that it doesn't allow cities to play a leading role. I think one of the interesting things about water, though, is that in most places around the world, water distribution is a municipal task. I think there is a reasonable chance that if the UN focuses more on water, it will push them to have to work more directly with cities around the world, which I think is only a good thing. And when they do, New York will have a lot to say. That was Rit Agarwala, New York City's chief climate officer. The show notes have links to Rit's most recent work. Make sure you check it out. Water Talks is a program by me, Tracy Metz, written and produced together with Jonathan Gruber. This marks the end of this companion series of interviews to Water Talks, The Big Five. Our theme song is called Into the Unknown by Poddington Bear, with additional music from Jason Shaw's Running Waters. Water Talks was made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. I'm Tracy Metz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>